0: That Triathlon Show 326. Hey, what's up everybody and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael and on today's episode I interview Scott Johnston. Scott is an endurance sports coach, author, and co-founder of the coaching business Uphill Athlete. The main focus of Scott and his company is coaching mountain sport athletes like mountain runners, climbers, and ski mountaineers, but Scott also has extensive background in more traditional endurance sports like swimming, cross-country skiing, and even triathlon, as we'll get into in the interview. Before we get into that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration. Precision Fuel and Hydration have a range of tools and products to help you personalize your fueling and hydration strategy so you can perform at your best. Everyone sweats differently, both in terms of sweat rate and sweat sodium concentration, so hydration strategies should be individualized accordingly. And fueling strategies will also need to be adapted based primarily on the duration and intensity of exercise or competition, as well as the athlete's ability to tolerate certain amounts and types of fuel. You can use the free online sweat test and quick carb calculator on precisionfuelandhydration.com to understand your fluid, electrolyte and carbohydrate needs during training and racing, And you can book a free one-to-one video consultation with the team to refine your strategy. As a listener of the podcast, you can get 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products by using the code TTS22 at checkout at precisionfuelandhydration.com and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com uh, i want to take the opportunity to talk about how i've been using one of roca's products the roca sim buoyancy shorts i'll probably get some backlash for this but for the last two years or more i have been doing almost all of my swimming in these neoprene shorts and in that time i've improved my swim a lot and i firmly believe that i improved more than i would have had i not been using the shorts so as much as i have because the three main benefits that I've seen have been that one, I've been able to swim at a higher volume and higher quality and intensity than I would have been capable otherwise. Uh, Two, I have been able to reduce the negative impact that a lot of bike and run training uh, would have on my swimming without the shorts. And three, the shorts have allowed me to work more on my limiters rather than my weaknesses. And by that, I mean that what might be a weakness for me when swimming in the pool in speedos uh, aren't a problem. They aren't a limiter in a race when I swim in a wetsuit. Uh, So because the shorts mimic the position of the wetsuit, I've been able to improve on those specific technical aspects that are limiting my race performance rather than ones that are limiting my pool performance in speedos and i was chatting with the team at roca recently and telling them uh, all of this telling them how much the seam shorts have helped me improve and they really wanted me to share this story on the podcast so here it is i'm not saying that it's the right strategy for everybody but for me it most certainly has been and i think there are other triathletes out there like me where this can can benefit you so you can read all the details about the seam shorts on roca.com and you can get 20 percent off your entire roca order on roca.com forward slash tts now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Scott Johnston. Welcome to That Triathlon Show, Scott. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great, Mikael. Thanks. Thanks very much for inviting me.
0: Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, you have an extremely interesting background in endurance sport. So can you tell the audience about yourself and about that background and what you're, what you're up to these days?
1: Sure, maybe I'll start with we'll work backwards. How about that chronologically? Sure. Um, so the, I am the uh, co-owner of a training online training platform called Training. Excuse me for called Uphill Athlete, and we have two books that um, we've written. One is called Training for the Uphill Athlete. And the first book we wrote was called Training for the New Alpinism, because we deal with all form of mountain sports. And we started primarily working with alpinists and mountaineers. Um, And shortly after uh, that book came out, we were contacted by someone people in your audience might recognize the name of, a guy named Killian Jornet. And um, Killian contacted Myself and my business partner Steve, uh, and said, "Hey, this is this book is great. Could you guys do something like it for you know the running, running and skiing sports in the mountains as well to convey the same information to that community?" And um, uh, we immediately said, "Yeah, that's great." And so we, our second book is co-authored with Killian. And um, it deals with more towards the the kind of sports that I think most of your audience would be more familiar with, you know, mountain running um, and skiing, uh, ski mo racing, ski mountaineering, that sort of thing, rather than alpinism and mountaineering. And um, what set me up for some having some authority in that realm was first that my business partner Steve House. I, he was a professional climber, professional alpinist. I coached him through the bulk of his uh, career, and he was considered large, largely considered to be the best high-altitude alpinist in the world um, by a, no less of an authority than Reinhold Messner. And... <clears throat> the process that Steve and I used to train him was you know, pretty unconventional. It was not what, how most climbers trained at that time. And it caught the attention of a lot of folks. Um, and people began to ask Steve, how did you train to do all these amazing things? And so he, he basically, he was actually on a book tour with his memoir. Um, and he, when people were asking this of him and he said, well, I could tell you, but I'd have to write a book. And so that's how this process started. And we (laughs) did write a book, but what had led me up to that point was in the 10 or so years that I was coaching Steve through this um, highly successful career as a climber were also coincided with the second half of my coaching career of cross country ski racers. And those folks were. I started started coaching a junior program um, around 2000, and I had a um, about 120 kids in the program. And we ended up producing. Uh, let's see, three, four Olympians out of that program, and several went on to very successful results on the World Cup and Olympic podiums, that sort of thing. And, um, and I was coinciding, the second half of that, as I said, coincided with the time I was coaching Steve. And prior to that, I had been a reasonably high-level athlete myself. I had um, competed um, on, in cross-country skiing at um, fairly the World Cup level, but with fairly mediocre to poor results, actually. So I wasn't a particularly good athlete myself, but it did give me a lot of exposure to the sport. <clears throat> At the same time, I had was um, quite an active climber, alpinist myself, and I so I was I understood the demands of you know conventional endurance sport training, along with the demands of the sort of the unconventional, quite unconventional sport of alpinism. and and then and leading into that, I had had a you know, varied career with some other type of work. I have an engineering background and a mathematics background, so I worked in those areas. Um, but as a younger person, I had been a swimmer and um, was part of an Olympic development program in swimming um, during my high school years, and competed at a fairly high level, uh, not at the Olympics, but. Um, high level in in that sport as well. So starting, you know, even as a adolescent young person, I was exposed to quite high level coaching approaches and and training philosophies, training theories. Um, And so that's kind of taking me back to the the beginning of my introduction to these kinds of sports. And I did just I did have a little exposure to triathlon one one year when I was um, training for cross-country ski racing, Um, A friend of mine who had been third place at the Ironman race, a guy named Grant Boswell, I think he was third there in the the mid-80s, and he said, oh, you should do triathlon, because I had this swimming background, and I obviously could run pretty well, and so Grant talked me into racing for a season as a triathlete, and so I got exposure to that sport as well. So I kind of have a broad background, I guess.
0: Yeah, and that uh, I guess development arc for your endurance career from swimming, where events last anywhere from twenty something seconds, uh, of course, if you're uh, a sprinter, to mountaineering, where you might have done expeditions like multi-day expeditions. Or I, I know very little about mountaineering and what kind of mountaineering you did or climbing you did, but but that's that's quite interesting to see how <laughs> how you went from the short end of the endurance spectrum to, to the long end as well. And that leads me into um, my next question, which is, can you uh, tell us one thing or one lesson that you learned through your experience in each of your main sports that you did? So swimming, cross country skiing and climbing slash mountaineering.
1: Yes, I think I, I can. Um, now I think there's a, kind of an overarching theme there as well, but the first one was swimming, was that swimmer swimming makes you really mentally tough because you're staring at. I me. Mean, in my case, uh, the coach, one of the, the coach I was working with in this Olympic development program, was a, an adherent of Arthur Lydiard's training. This was back in the you know mid to late 70s, and I'm sure many of your people are folks are familiar with the Arthur Lydiard, but he was the first. Major proponent of you know accumulating a high volume of low intensity training. And so my coach started taking those ideas to heart and applying them to swimming. So we trained um, typically five hours a day for six days a week about uh, each day was about twenty thousand meters. and um, so we spent five hours a day staring at the bottom of a pool. You have to be fairly, Mentally tough to do that, I think, um, or kind of stupid and being a young guy and really wanting to do this uh, just you pointed me in the right direction and I was willing to do it, but I think that really kind of toughened me up in a way um, I mean anybody who has trained much in swimming I think can probably relate to that and then when I took that and obviously held had a really good um, effect on my fitness base. But when I went to cross-country skiing, it was very liberating because I was outdoors, either running or skiing, and um, it it was a lot more fun than than being in the pool. And then the thing that I came away from with cross-country skiing was to understand that often the dogma surrounding the uh, approach to training can be wrong. And I experienced that when I started skiing at a high level and was exposed to um, high level coaching and cross country skiing with the US ski team. That I I knew from my exposure to training as a swimmer that some of these ideas that were being used in a fairly dogmatic way about this is the way it must be done didn't line up with what I knew about training. And so I began to question that. that helped me and that and helped me both in were those ideas well there was I, I mean i think we'll get into that more because i see some of your other questions that so we'll kind of dive into that so I'm, I'm interested in telling you a little more about it but essentially <clears throat> there was a lack of understanding about the mixture of volume you know the volume of what we would call aerobic base training and intensity that was the biggest thing that came to mind for me Um, and it resulted in the misuse of those ideas or the misuse uh, of those training philosophies resulted in a lot of athletes, young athletes, never reaching their potential.
0: Yeah, you're right. We'll go into that in more detail later so uh, we can skip ahead to your climbing lesson learned.
1: Yeah. So then when I took some of these ideas into climbing, I began to experiment um, with these ideas that i I'd picked up in these more conventional sports and how they how if i applied them to my own personal training i wasn't being coached or anything like that but i was saying oh maybe if i should do these kind this kind of training to help my performance in the mountains and I began to have tremendous success with it and um you know certainly back in the 70s or in early 80s not too many climbers were training they just climbers just go tra- go climbing for training that's what they do it's been the, the tradition for years and I began to apply more of a systematic approach to my training and began to see great results with it so when I began to coach Steve Um, in the early 2000s, that was same kind of uh, thing happened. I I could say to Steve, first of all, I understand why we're doing these things, because I have this background in these conventional sports and the conventional sport training methodologies. But I also understand how we can apply these conventional sports ideas to this unconventional sport. And so this, I don't know, outside the box thinking maybe is too strong a word, but it, it did having the background in these other two sports proved really valuable in terms of um, adapting to this kind of extrapolating my current knowledge to a new situation
0: yeah so uh, we might not get too deep into climbing specifically but i'm very curious to hear uh some uh, the highlight reel so to say of uh, in what way is that sort of that endurance or aerobic foundation important for climbers and uh, explain this to somebody that knows nothing about climbing. And, and also secondly, how do you then train that part for, uh, for a climber like yourself or for Steve, like do you use cycling or running or what does that look like in practice? Great, great question. Um, so first of all, it, it's, if
1: you, th- many of these uh, when we're talking Major alpine climbs, these things are going to last, you know, from many hours to several days, uh, often nonstop. You know, there, it's not at all. Steve did a climb in uh, a very difficult climb in Alaska that was um, continuous movement for 60 hours and with significant technical difficulties. So there's a need in that case for a mix of both, you know, the strong, high aerobic capacity so that you can keep going for hours and hours, and then also some significant strength and power, and um, and then also high technical skills which, as you well know from you know, training, any endurance athlete knows that when you become fatigued, the first thing that goes away is fine motor skills. Your technique begins to break down. And in climbing, you can't really afford that luxury. You don't have that luxury because you can't just, there's no do-overs. I mean, you can fall and be killed. And so maintaining a, um, being able to, degr- you're having your fine motor skills and your cognitive abilities not degrade over long duration events is key, not just a success, but in fact, sometimes staying alive. So the importance of this, uh, you know, the, the primary importance, I think, of the aerobic base is as a support mechanism, um, except in ultra long events like we see, you know, it's more popular now for um. Some there's obviously some bicycle races that are ultra long. Many um, endurance running races in the mountains, especially, have you know gone on to you know two to three hundred miles in length, and take you know eighty to plus eighty plus hours to complete these. And in those type of an events, the endurance base is really quite specific to the performance. But in shorter events, the endurance base is more of a support mechanism for them. Um, but So in that way, I hope I've made it sort of understandable that these, even though the intensity at sometimes in these long duration mountaineering or alpine climbing event uh, scenarios is rather low because you're on the move for so many hours, there are periods during that when the intensity is going to be very high um, throughout uh, through for for several several minutes to even you know an hour or more. So I hope that sort of addresses that question.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, that that makes sense, and I mean, I think it's a little bit analogous to some team sports, like something that I'm quite familiar with is uh, football or soccer, and uh, how that's definitely not an endurance sport, but still having an endurance base is important for the repeated sprint ability. That's how. So it's not per se technical, but but that's a little bit analogous to what you described there with that the endurance base access to support mechanism for something that is really important for performance in that sport and, and i would think even in soccer
1: especially if you're you know if those fine motor skills begin to degrade i mean it's a pretty technically demanding sport um that you know if the fine motor skills degrade you're not going to play a very good even if you have great endurance you're not going to play a great game of, of football or soccer um, if you can't hit the ball or can't make it go where yeah, you want it no, to that's go. right
0: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So that was already a very nice leading into your perspectives on on the importance of an aerobic base and endurance performance. Um, for if we're talking about traditional endurance sports like triathlon, swimming, cycling, running, what are are there any other things that you think are important to mention when it comes to that aerobic base and how it matters for endurance performance? Sure. I I think it's maybe a good place to start with that is by endurance.
1: When I think of endurance, I think of anything longer than about two minutes, because any event that lasts two minutes or longer is the energy supply is dominated by the aerobic metabolic pathway. And so even for relatively short events, um, having a good aerobic base becomes quite important. Obviously, if you're a 400 meter runner, it's not very important to you. But certainly, to the fifteen hundred meter runner, even you know, even though that's an event that, at the world class level, is three and a half minutes long, it's still dominated by the aerobic, the aerobic metabolic pathway, and the only way that you can train this aerobic base is by training at a level that requires the maximum production of aerobic metabolism without uh, with a minimal uh activation of the anaerobic metabolic pathway and so that means training at a relatively low intensity and in order to accumulate a high volume of this type of training you're you're sort of forced into training at a relatively low intensity i mean not not too many people can you know train 20 hours a week And have very much of that at a high intensity, or they will very rapidly fall into an overtraining state. Um, So it's and as I mentioned, especially in more conventional sports, you know that last let's say you know three and a half to four minutes to up to you know two to four hours, this aerobic base. Uh, that I'm talking about, which is the maximum, we we think of it as aerobic capacity. So it's the capacity of the aerobic system, aerobic metabolic system to produce ATP, adenosine triphosphate, which is the fuel that the muscles use for contraction. And we want to maximize the aerobic capacity while minimizing the uh, anaerobic s- stimulus to the anaerobic system so that it's sort of down regulated in this type of in this aerobic base training the, the reason for the reason that that's important in all endurance sports is that the and I'll, I'll have to go down slightly into the weeds but i'll try to not i'm not want to bore people that's fine
0: we're used it. to it on this podcast
1: okay <laughs> the physiology of this but and i'm sure much of this is probably already known by your audience but we're these long duration events are um, the the propulsion that, that we use for the locomotion in them comes almost entirely from the slow twitch muscle fibers. And those, those muscle fibers are powered almost exclusively by this aerobic metabolic system. Now the, the, Next door to these slow twitch fibers are the repository of, you know, faster twitch fibers nearby that you would need for these sprints and you would need for the, um, the, to sustain, let's say, something up near your functional threshold power or your anaerobic threshold pace in running or something like that. Um, those, those things are all lying ne- next to each other in this muscle fiber makeup of, of, let's say, the quadricep muscle or something. <clears throat> the, as many people know the 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 byproduct of anaerobic or glycolytic metabolism, which is what fuels those faster rich fibers is a product known as lactate you know, some people call it lactic acid but in in reality lactic acid is doesn't really exist for more than you know milliseconds because it's you know you're in an aqueous solution there in the in the body and so the uh, lactic acid very quickly um, breaks down into uh, a hydrogen ion and the, um, the lactate sugar molecule. Well, it turns out that this, these slow-twitch fibers that are next door to these faster-twitch fibers can take up and use that otherwise relatively useless byproduct of fast-twitch uh, muscle fiber. Um, they can take that lactate up and use it as fuel very effectively. And that was discovered in the early 80s by a, a man named George Brooks. And it's come to be known as the lactate shuttle, and where the lactate is taken, moved by some enzymes out of the faster-twitch fibers and into adjacent slow-twitch fibers where it gets used as fuel. So, And as, as I'm sure all of your guests or your, your listeners are familiar with, you know, an accumulation of lactate in the blood – corresponds with I don't know if it causes it but it certainly corresponds with a reduction in force production and you know slowing you have to slow down as lactate production builds beyond a certain point so if we could if we can Im- increase the size of or increase the aerobic capacity of these slow twitch fibers then they are able to take up more of that lactate is being produced by the faster twitch fibers nearby. And and you can think of it sort of as a vacuum cleaner. And So the bigger the vacuum cleaner, the more this lactate that these um, slow twitch fibers can take up, which means that those faster twitch fibers can contribute more to the force production before lactate levels increase to the point where you're forced to slow down. And so that's why I was saying in these conventional sports, the aerobic base training is essentially a support mechanism for more um, sport-specific type uh, act, you know, intensity training or intensity in races. So, let's say in a you know, an international length um, triathlon, you're not going to be doing any of your racing at this low intensity aerobic base training level. And so pe- that's where it becomes counterintuitive. Some people will say, well, why should I train this aerobic base? I'm never racing there. Well, the reason you should train it is you want to increase the size of that vacuum cleaner so that when you're in your race and those fast-twitch fibers are producing uh, lactate, there's some place for that lactate to go and be used. So that's sort of the my take on you know, understanding why this aerobic base training is important and where it fits into the training even for you know, relatively short events you know like the 1500 meters that's a that'd be a perfect example
0: um, yeah no that, that's a great explanation and and i think that the, the lactate uh, explanations that you gave there as well they uh, they are really nice and they show what happens under the hood when we for example do two lactate tests separated by Uh, a couple a few months of training and we we see an improvement we see for example less lactate for a certain power or a certain pace that doesn't necessarily mean that less lactate is produced there might be as much or even more lactate produced but but you have managed to improve your slow twitch fibers ability to uptake that lactate and use it as fuel. So you see less of it as concentration in in the blood. Uh, So so that's an important distinction uh, distinction there. And and that just enhances your endurance capacity. Um, One follow-up question that I have on what you said is regarding how easy you should do this base training and why. So uh, do you think that the reason to train at a low intensity is simply so that you can do a lot of it and uh, and and that's the best way to maximize your aerobic fitness and your slow twitch fibers or you also mentioned they're down regulating the anaerobic contribution is, is that an important part of it part of it can you can you explain a little bit more around why the intensity control there is important sure
1: i think those are two separate questions so just the second one first is I believe that all endurance athletes even the you know multi-hour although it's less important for the you know the the person who's doing a 100 mile race but all endurance athletes need to elevate both their aerobic and anaerobic capacities. And this is especially true in relatively shorter events. And you know, this would again relating back to something like the the eight hundred meters or the fifteen hundred meters. It's very important in those events, or as you and I were talking before we started recording the cross country ski sprint event. It's super important that the athlete has both an exceptionally high aerobic capacity, but they also need to have a very high anaerobic capacity. And those are, but the, the confusion I think comes for, for many people that those are two completely different metabolic systems and they respond to different training stimuli. And so you need to understand why, what you're training for, what kind of effect you're looking for with this specific training session. Now, the to back to your first question with regards to the duration of training the biggest stimulus to increase well any kind of training stimulus is the volume of training and because these slow twitch fibers have a lot of endurance in them they require a stimulus that will fatigue them in order for them to make adaptations but that stimulus might have to last for several hours in some cases um, depending on the fitness of the athlete. Whereas this training stimulus for the anaerobic or the faster twitch fibers, that comes mostly from the intensity of the activity. And although duration is important in that, I mean, you, you, we can get into that later, but so duration is important always, but in aerobic-based training it's critical that the volume is high enough to create these this aerobic base training stimulus. So you improve that way. How how high that is or how much volume it is, I mean I think you your audience certainly understands that the um the, the, the reason that uh, high-level marathon runners run 100 miles a week and sometimes much more is that that's what they need to do in order to get that training stimulus. And you could say the same thing about professional bicycle racers who are training for you know, um, multi-day events. They put in a huge volume of relatively easy Um, writing because that's what they need to do in order to stimulate the, the, in order to increase the size of that vacuum cleaner that I was talking about earlier. Um, And so that's why I think you, um, that's where volume really comes into play. And it's the reason that endurance athletes and especially long distance endurance athletes train uh, in some cases, kind of a ridiculously high volume. Um, Does that answer that or did I leave something out?
0: Yep. That that makes sense uh and and but then the other part was the um the, the dimension that you made of down down regulating the anaerobic metabolism yes. during this training and yeah how, how does that play in with also what you said that you want a high anaerobic capacity in, in the end <laughs> that's where training gets really difficult and
1: um it's great to have these theories that we i think we understand reasonably well but it's important to understand that when you train either one of these systems to upregulate the aerobic system, let's say, it will downregulate the um, anaerobic system and vice versa. You train um, too much anaerobic work, you're going to downregulate the aerobic system. And the, trying to achieve that balance is an incredibly difficult and delicate process. And of course, it's different for different sports. And um, you know, the the recovery time between training sessions, it becomes really important. But essentially what, what I've had, I, I have seen ways that it can, you can, um, and I usually use a sort of a block training system when I'm trying to do this with, let's say, a, a, a middle distance runner or a cross-country ski sprinter, where we'll have a block of training that maybe is you know two to three or four weeks long, where the emphasis uh, is on one of these systems. And the training emphasis on the other system drops down to more of a, a maintenance level so that we can return to that system in the next block of training. And we cycle that way. And so, yes, there is some down regulation of the non-primary system that's being trained during that block, but we hope to not completely destroy it so that when we return to that, you know, stimulus for that system, uh, um, we can what i've seen is it seems to happen is kind of a stair step approach you know you're in one block the aerobic system's getting stronger and we try to minimize the damage to the anaerobic system and then the whole situation reverses in the next block of training um, and so that's it, it's where coaching i think becomes more art than science and it's it requires a very close <laughs> communication with the athlete and monitoring of their performance and if you begin to see you know, let's say a significant drop off in aerobic capacity um, or anaerobic capacity, you need to be able to take, you know, in some action to mitigate that so that you, you don't do, you don't want to push one down too far. And especially the aerobic one, because it's, it is possible for an endurance athlete to have too much anaerobic capacity, but it is not possible to have too much aerobic capacity. It just doesn't happen
0: yeah yeah absolutely that makes sense um and we'll get into some uh some more specifics around examples of training structure in a little bit first can you define the term aerobic deficiency syndrome that i know that you use in uh in your books and and on your blogs and so on
1: Uh, sure and i certainly i can't take credit for coining that term um someone also that your audience might be familiar with is uh Phil Maffetone and Phil and I go back quite a long time I worked with him as a coach in the early 80s actually um with him giving me some coaching advice but he came up with this term of aerobic deficiency syndrome and basically what what it means is y- your vacuum cleaner is too small for the level of um, anaerobic work that you're trying to perform and so you need to take there's some proactive steps you could take to to decrease or eliminate this aerobic deficiency syndrome but it's surprising how many and even quite high level athletes you know world-class athletes that i've worked with who have come to me who are aerobically deficient and I know that sounds kind of shocking to you know, think that somebody who specializes in, let's say, a 50-kilometer cross-country ski race and com- competes at the World Cup could be aerobically deficient, but it, it has happened. I've seen it frequently. And certainly in the, the recreational uh, amateur athlete realm, I see it, You know, I mean, I would guess 80 to 90% of the people that <clears throat> come to us for coaching are aerobically deficient. And so we need to first fix that problem. Because until we get the vacuum cleaner of adequate size, none of this other stuff makes very much difference. It's not you can't just focus in on improving the uh, glycolytic or anaerobic capacity um, until you have this this aer- an adequate aerobic base or adequate aerobic capacity. So that's sort of the long and short of this aerobic deficiency syndrome. I know it sounds dangerous and uh, <laughs> desperate, but I mean, if you're an athlete, it is kind of a bad thing to have.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a good good definition. And and how do you assess that when you when you get new athletes coming on board? Uh, what what is the measurements that you use to, uh, to to test whether an athlete is aerobically deficient or not?
1: Well, we can. There's several methods, and all the way from using a a gas analysis, you know, gas exchange test on a treadmill, that can be a a good a good way of of doing this, and uh, all the way to a self a blood lactate test, like you were mentioning, lactate test that can be another very good way to assess the aerobic capacity, and then finally, there's a, a a tool that we use that is that relies on collecting uh careful gps and heart rate data over a prescribed uh, running distance in our case we usually use it running um that compares how much if let's say hold it. you're going to run for an hour and hold the pace steady how much does your heart rate increase over that one hour run and the amount of increase in that heart rate at a steady pace is an indicator of how of that aerobic base capacity. So there's three pretty distinct ways that it can be done. Um, the self-administered test actually has anyone who of your, and I would assume a great deal of your number of your audience use training peaks as a um, platform for recording their training yep. and, and training peaks has a metric for this. They auto an auto calculation um, metric that they that they collect, um, which is their pace to heart rate ratio. And in the old days, when I, when I was an athlete, we would call this heart rate drift. And so I still use that term because it's close to my heart. And that's what I learned. Training Peaks calls it um, heart rate, <clears throat> excuse me, decoupling heart rate, decoupling between the pace and the heart rate. And the way we can in, in any of these cases, what we're trying to to do is in whether it's with this self-administered um, heart rate drift test, a blood lactate test, or a gas analysis on a um, on a treadmill or a stationary bike, would be to determine what is the maximum intensity that you can sustain. And that intensity could be measured by you know running pace, heart rate, power on a bicycle any one of those things was it gives a, a good measure of intensity how much what's the maximum intensity that you can sustain for a long period of time at um before the anaerobic system <clears throat> begins to have to kick in to make up for deficits in the aerobic capacity's ability to produce that all-important uh, molecule called atp and That maximum intensity has a number of different terms uh, depending on where you are in the world and what uh, journals you've read or what kind of coaching system you're under. Um, It's historically often been called the aerobic threshold because it's the maximum amount of power or pace that your aerobic system can um, produce ATP for before you have to start relying more than usually fifty percent is the common thing on the anaerobic system fifty uh, percent of the ATP will be coming from the anaerobic system and it's also sometimes called the first lactate threshold it's sometimes called the first ventilatory threshold it's got all it's got several other names that I think we don't want to confuse people with but basically it's where the anaerobic system begins to dominate ATP production and it's usually at for people with aerobic deficiency syndrome, this can be at a, a shockingly low pace, heart rate, or intensity, and that people will be shocked by that because they'll say, wait a minute, I, I feel just fine. I'm There's no problem here. Why am I running, having to run so slowly <clears throat> to stay in this aerobic um, intensity zone? And the reason you're having to run that slowly is that's all the ATP that your aerobic metabolic pathway is able to produce before it needs to call in the cavalry um you know the anaerobic system to to make up the deficit in ATP production from ATP demand um so the uh i guess i don't know is that i hope i don't, I don't want to go too far down this without stopping and asking
0: if i'm on the right track it it makes no you're on the right track exactly and i guess what you would then have to do is kind of look at the athletes' performances and and compare that to where you find their aerobic threshold or LT1 sits. And so let's say you have a like a really good miler let's say a four-minute miler, but but you find that their aerobic threshold sits at 620 per mile or something, mm-hmm. which would be quite low for that level of of run, or very low for that level of runner uh then then you would know that okay we have a we have an issue here that the uh this athlete has strong performance but but the aerobic system is not uh, it like if you want to improve we're going to have to improve the aerobic system uh and so you can do you would have to relate because obviously athletes of different levels would have different they might not be aerobically deficient depending on what their performance says so you have to have to compare that to the their aerobic threshold to their performance if that makes sense am i on the right track with that
1: no absolutely and and that's where it can be difficult you're working with a high level athlete who does have quite good performance but then you discover that they're aerobically deficient And what you're going to have to ask them to do is take two steps backwards to correct this aerobic deficiency. And they're not going to like hearing that they need to slow down in order to get faster. And I don't know if you recall, I I just mentioned a few minutes ago about someone skiing a 50 kilometer cross country ski race, which takes a bit over two hours. Usually Um, I had just such a situation arise where a fellow who was within a remarkably high max VO2 uh, 92 milliliters. And he came to me and his performance had stagnated. Um, he was not competitive on the world cup. He was quite co- reasonably competitive on a national level, but not competitive on the world cup. And first thing I did was do an aerobic threshold test with him and we did it running. And I'm, I'm going to speak in um, minutes per mile because that's what I'm more familiar with. But the first time we did an aerobic threshold test was uh, we, we found that his aerobic threshold heart rate was about 135. Now, this is a young, healthy male. And um, so 135 was his, uh, the maximum intense heart rate he could achieve um, with the. Under to stay under this uh, and stay in this aerobic zone, and the running pace was about eight and a half minutes per mile. And when I told him, you know, I said, Well, this right there, your vacuum cleaner is not big enough. You're he was able to perform at a reasonably high level because he had this huge aerobic power, but he couldn't sustain that power output for very long because his vacuum cleaner was too small. So we we went to this sort of what I would call remedial training where we had to do all this aerobic base training. And he said he was kind of a big shot in the area that he lived because he had been to some Olympics and that sort of thing. And, um, but he said, I have to run with a bag over my head. I'm so embarrassed that I'm running this slowly outdoors. And, and, you know, people are going to wonder why the heck I'm, you know, what's wrong with me? Four or five months about four months later, we did a follow up aerobic threshold test, and his aerobic threshold heart rate had moved from one thirty five to one sixty five, and his aerobic threshold running pace had dropped from eight and a half minute miles to six fifteen miles. So now I thought, okay, we've kind of fixed this aerobic deficit problem. We have got the vacuum cleaner big enough. Now we can start layering on the intensity. But he had he had had a diet. A training diet of too much high intensity, not coupled with enough low intensity, in the past, and that's what had caused this out of balance. Um, the anaerobic system was too dominant, um, and he went on to um, even a better and better performance after that.
0: Yeah, that's a great example. And for the metric listeners, I just did the conversion. So he went from around five fifteen minutes per kilometer for his aerobic threshold to about three minutes 50 per kilometer so a huge uh huge difference um and uh well then let's get into some more i think you've already given some great examples here that that already kind of illustrate the point a little bit but but uh, what are the main points that you would make for the listeners when it comes to how to do quote-unquote aerobic base training um, can you can you discuss that that uh, a little bit more and, and give some tips and tricks Sure. Well, you can, first, I think it's important to establish this upper limit of this
1: intensity zone that kind of what we call this aerobic threshold, um, whether with one of these types of tests that we've already talked about. And then it's important to understand that you can only nudge the aerobic capacity up from below. So let's say in this guy's case, his heart rate was 135. If he needed to tr- to do his training in that 130 to 135 heart rate zone, it needs to be kind of, like I said, gently nudged up from below. You can't drag it up from above. So if he did his training at 150, that would not increase the aerobic uh, capacity or increase that aerobic base or threshold. Um, it would, in fact, push it down. And so this is where it becomes difficult for, especially if athletes have been fairly successful. It it feels very remedial to have to go back to this. Um, ways to regulate that, you know, if you, if you haven't done a test like these tests we've talked about, one of the, I think the simplest way to uh, assess whether you are in this aerobic zone is can you carry on a conversation with complete sentences? If you can't, you are almost undoubtedly above your aerobic threshold. And so that can be a very easy self-check. You know, maybe if you're running by yourself or cycling by yourself, you have to talk to yourself a little bit. But, you know, if you're training with a partner, it's easy. If you can carry on that conversation, you know you're getting an aerobic-based training effect from that. And obviously, you know, more sophisticated measurements from these tests can allow you, and I'm sure m- many of the people in your audience are, use heart rate monitors and power meters and that sort of thing. And so you could actually quantify it much more closely by... Um, with those methods then you're doing something as crude as a conversational pace and some people will even use and i've used it myself is nose breathing the upper limit of nose breathing tends to correlate very closely to this aerobic threshold we're talking about
0: mm, yeah that those are those are some great tips and uh and also we'll link to the article because you have an article on your website with uh um the heart rate drift test so it's f- fairly easy to, to execute so, so i'll put a link in the show notes so listeners can go and have a look at that and and then they can self-test in a quantitative manner if they should desire um when you do what about the balance between you, you mentioned already a few bits and pieces there about including some maintenance uh high intensity even when focusing on the aerobic side of things can you can you explain a bit more about what that might look like in a in a training week, uh, and uh, and also how, what the balance over the course of a year, for example, is between focusing on the aerobic uh, metabolism versus uh, the higher intensity and the anaerobic metabolism.
1: Sure, um, I think the, the most fundamental thing to understand with endurance training is that the high intensity training is a supplement to. Not a replacement for this low-intensity training, and that's something I think that you know is, has been misleadingly presented in a lot of the popular press and media. Is that oh, I only have thirty minutes to train today, so I'm just going to go out and do this. You know, I'm going to go and run as hard as I can for thirty minutes. And while that's a beneficial training uh, tool it's not improving your aerobic capacity because you're probably training well above your aerobic threshold when you do that. And so people have been, I think in some ways misled to believe that, Oh, I'm going to get the same training effect, but I can get it in a shorter period of time. And you know, our physiology just does not work that way. I mean, there's a reason as we pointed out before that the best marathoners, you know, are often training a hundred plus miles a week and so i think that that's the first important thing to gather up to gather and understand is that the aerobic tra- training for endurance is a high volume of quite low intensity sp- capped off or sprink- sprinkled in with a small volume of quite high intensity and because these two systems as we've talked about need different stimuli now the how much um Perhaps some of your listeners are familiar with Steven Seiler's work, a physiologist that's based out of Norway. And Steven Seiler's done some metadata studies on um, very successful of world-class and world-champion level endurance athletes um, from the sports of swimming, running, cycling, cross-country skiing, and I think – and rowing as well. And looked at this and said – what's the mix of intensity or what's the, what do, I think he calls it the intensity distribution for very successful endurance athletes. And <clears throat> some of you probably have heard of this 80-20 rule. Um, there's been even books written about the 80-20 rule. I think it's a it's a little bit of a misunderstanding, but what Seiler came up with in this meta stu- data study was that these most successful endurance athletes about eighty percent of their training was done in this aerobic zone, and by by that I mean eighty percent of their training sessions were completed in this aerobic base training zone, and that um, about twenty percent were in twenty um, percent of the training sessions were completed in this anaerobic. Had their purpose of that training session was to work this high intensity area, so the. Um, but the real takeaway, if you read between the lines of that study, and in subsequent studies, he's talked more about this, is that it turns out that in terms of total training volume, training time, about 90% of the training was done in this, aer- this aerobic base zone, and only about 10% of the training time was done in the higher intensity training zones. And that's, I think, for many people, a bit of a shock. And uh, that it's that little stimulus is enough to improve the overall performance of the athlete, athlete. That little stimulus to the anaerobic system can make a huge difference. And so I think that's an important thing for people to understand is that, you know, that's why endurance training can be rather boring. There's just a whole lot of low intensity work that's needed to be done. And then you sprinkle in this a little bit of the more fun, sexy type training into it. So that's, I guess, how I think of the intensity distribution. And what he found with the world class athletes is this intensity distribution tended to remain fairly consistent year round. Uh, you know, they were obviously during the competitive season there would be um, a, a, a little more intensity into their training. Um, because of the depending on how much they raced but even you know in the build-up to their competitive season there wasn't an excessive uh, use of high intensity training by these athletes and that's certainly been my experience with um, the world-class cross-country skiers that I've trained is that it, it just doesn't take that much stimulus if you have a big if the vacuum planer is big then a little stimulus to that anaerobic system goes a very long way.
0: Yeah, uh, that's a great summary. I, I think one thing that I want to to clarify in terms of definitions here, when when you talked about uh, improving the aerobic capacity with the low-intensity training, um, listeners will be very familiar with different studies on interval training, for example, and how they improve VO2 max with this many percent or that many percent. So so when you talk about improving aerobic capacity exclusively with low intensity training uh the way i understand it is more it's your endurance performance capacity or perhaps even your ability to maintain a certain high percentage of your vo2 max for a prolonged duration is that, is that correct or or did i get that wrong that, that's, that's certainly the way i understand it i think of um
1: so I think I make a slightly different distinction, and I'm, I didn't again think of this myself. I, I got it from a, a, a Dutch swimming coach and physiologist named Jan Albrecht, who's wrote a, written a book called um, uh, "The Science of Winning." And uh, it's it's a if you really want to know about lactate dynamics, um, this is the book for you. Uh, not easy to get a hold of. I think it's only distributed by one place out of U- the UK that I could find. But anyway, um, he makes a very important distinction and that between aerobic capacity and aerobic power. Now, aerobic power is is what we think of as max VO2. And I mean, that's one way to measure the maximum aerobic power is doing a max VO2 test. Aerobic capacity, on the other hand, is, like I mentioned before, the maximum intensity that you can sustain while the aerobic system is the dominant production um mechanism for producing that atp now when you're up in the higher intensity zones where you could produce maximum uh max vo2 then you're going to be getting a significant contribution of the energy coming from that anaerobic system which is why you can't sustain that max vo2 effort for more than just a couple minutes two or three minutes Um, you know any longer than that and the intensity will have to be will have to drop down because it's not sustainable which is one of the reasons that max vo2 does not correlate particularly well with endurance performance what correlates well with endurance performance as you just alluded to is what percentage of that max vo2 can you sustain for a long duration <clears throat> and that's often that's indicated usually in a test that would be indicated by let's say what we call the anaerobic threshold or the second you know lactate th- threshold or the second ventilatory threshold again there's you know the maximum lactate steady state well, that's excuse me that's the uh, aerobic threshold the um so you know excuse me maximum lactate steady state would be another um, indication or a, a measurement of the uh, that maximum the percentage of your max VO2 that you can produce, and that is highly correlated with endurance performance. So what we and again this is where that aerobic system, the aerob- the vacuum cleaner, plays this critical supporting role. Is it allows you to sustain a higher percentage of your max vo2 for a longer period of time and so what we would like to do in through our training is like i mentioned with that skier elevate the aerobic threshold up to its high as high an intensity as we can get it so that it's close to that anaerobic threshold which in turn is close to your maximum uh either heart rate or maximum power output we want those upper zones uh, intensity zones to be squeezed down to, you know, in some cases I've had, um, world cup cross country skiers where that middle zone, what we make, uh, let's our zone system. I know we wanted to talk a little bit about that. Maybe this is a time to segue into that, if that's okay. yeah 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 we can do that uh, okay so i'll the-
0: just can, i'll just chime in with a comment there I, I, oh, yeah, that, that, that all makes uh perfect sense and uh thank you that's that's exactly what i what i was asking about the only comment that i have there is that uh, i do think that jan Olbrecht defines defines the terms in the opposite way that you described so aerobic capacity would be your max vo2 and aerobic power would be the percentage of vo2 you can hold uh or your ability to hold mm-hmm. that okay but, excuse me it's been a number of yeah. years since i read his book yeah, so yeah yeah he's a he's a past, past, past guest on the podcast. And and so is Steven Seiler. Okay. okay. So yeah, just uh, I'll put the links to those interviews in the show notes as well.
1: Great. Well, thank you for that correction.
0: Yeah. So let's segue into the into the zones then. And uh, yeah, you were saying there about the difference between the, um, the between the first and the second, lactate like threshold, and you that, that's what you were starting to talk about.
1: Yes. So this distance between the first and second lactate thresholds, we would like, and what seems to happen with very successful endurance athletes is that the distance between those two measured in intensity or heart rate is minimized. And in some cases, I have seen that gap. Typically, I like to see it you know below 10%. Um, before i think okay this person has you know a good enough aerobic capacity that you know we're we're probably not going to increase that much more uh, at least in this training cycle but i have seen it as low as 6% in one world cup cross country skier and so when you think of 6% with a let's say 180 heart rate you know we're talking just what's that about you know 10 beats yeah 10 heart rate beats <clears throat> so it's a very narrow just um, di- distance between these two. One of the interesting things that comes from that is when an athlete has this very high um, aerobic threshold, then they are, they shouldn't, and they, they would be unwise to do a lot of their training up near that anaerobic, excuse me, that aerobic threshold, because it's too close to the anaerobic threshold. It's too, even though metabolically they are in, a, in an aerobic state, neuromuscularly it's very demanding on them and i think a a good real world example of this is you know someone like iliad kipchoge who has you know broken two hours in the marathon his aerobic threshold in the marathon is an event that's competed at or quite close to one's aerobic threshold so his aerobic threshold pace is around you know what's that Four and a half minute miles. What's that calculate to in in kilometers per hour? The world record pace was
0: was about 252 per kilometer, I think. Uh, The the sub two. Yeah,
1: so it's under three minutes per kilometer. And so even though metabolically he's in an aerobic, predominantly aerobic state, neuromuscularly, running that fast takes a huge toll on your nervous system and on the muscles themselves. And if an athlete, a, a high level athlete, trains very much at that intensity, they would again run a significant risk of overtraining or injury. So the the fitter the athlete, and this is somewhat counterintuitive, the fitter the athlete, the more polarized, that's a term as you know that Siler has used that I think is a great way of thinking of it, but the fitter the athlete, the more polarized the training needs to be. So there needs to be a bigger spread, but the easy days need to be quite easy so that the hard days can be hard.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: And training too much in the middle gets yeah, training too much in the middle is a rather dangerous place for the very fit yeah. athlete. Whereas someone who is aerobically deficient would need to train a, a lot up close to that um, aerobic threshold.
0: Yeah, but which, as you pointed out, still will for many recreational athletes anyway, will feel very easy. So um, in terms of feeling, it's still a low intensity. But but your in terms of your percentage of aerobic threshold, your very close to it compared to the elite like eliot kipchoge type person um so yes. uh going into the wait there was one follow-up i had on that i think um no i'll it will, it will come to me if it comes to me but uh no actually now i remember so and, uh, running is obviously a, a great example with the neuromuscular demands, as you mentioned but even in non-weight-bearing sports like cycling if you have a very high aerobic threshold then even just the caloric demands of riding there would be so high that you can easily overtrain, even though you're at that low intensity, uh, relatively speaking. So, so that's why cyclists would do the same. They they wouldn't go out and do six hours day in day out at their aerobic threshold because that's just way too hard. They're way below that. Exactly. Yeah. Totally completely agree. So, so now then, let's get into training zones and and testing. So, where do you want to start? I mean, they the two go hand in hand. So, so what do you think makes the most sense to to start with? Uh,
1: I think that training needs to be individualized to the needs of the athlete. So, it's one of the reasons that you know just grabbing a stock training plan from somewhere on the internet and looking at, oh, this is what the latest, you know, this is what so-and-so, this is what Iliad Kipchoge did for the last six months of his training. So I'm just going to copy that and I'm sure I will have the best marathon of my life. That's a huge mistake because Iliad Kipchoge's training obviously was individualized for his needs, not yours. So if you were aerobically deficient, you would be doing an entirely different kind of training. So I like to start all of the Training I'm with, as I mentioned, with that cross country skier, the 50 kilometer guy, is as let's establish. We need to establish these zones with you with through some form of testing, so that we know what your metabolic response to exercise is first. And once we know that, then we can start shaping the training around it. I mean, are you aerobically deficient? Do we need to have a lot of training to? you know, uh, fix that problem first, or are you aerobically very fit? Like this guy that I mentioned, who's the spread between the two thresholds was only a, a few beats, you know, less than 10 beats. Um, you know, so w- those two athletes need very different kinds of training. And it also means that training in a group can be dangerous for, so if I sent, these those two guys that I just mentioned. If I sent them out and told them to do the same kind of training, they were going to get completely different training effects from it. And so I think it's what I see often at the collegiate level or uh, club level, where people go out and train together. Is that you know the, the person who's perhaps leading the pace is in the correct training zone. Um, they are, let's say, it's an easy bike ride or an easy run. <clears throat> the the one who's out in front probably is training properly, but the ones who don't have that kind of aerobic um, power, they would be struggling because they would be in a much higher intensity zone, and so they're not getting the training stimulus that the coach probably would like to see them get, or that they think they're getting. And those people will also, again, like we've talked about several times, they'll run a significant risk of becoming overtrained because they're they're doing the wrong kind of training stimulus too much. So this idea of establishing a baseline from which the athlete, so that the coach and the athlete understand where they're starting from, that sets allows you to make a roadmap to where we're going from here. How are we going to get there? And I think that's that's my first, like I said, rule number one. And then once we do that, we can start to sprinkle in intensity where it's needed, when it's needed. And again, that's very different for different athletes and there's a lot of different ways to add intensity. Um, you're probably um, f- understand or familiar with um, Per Ostrand's famous quote from his book 19- in 1970, I think it was that he wrote about, you know, it's about, I don't remember the name of the book, but it's physiology of endurance. Um, and he said at that time, it's not clear what kind of intensity training. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here. He, he actually is much more specific in that. But it's, it wasn't. It's not clear what kind of high intensity training is the best stimulus. And despite studies that have been done um, subsequent to that, you know, in, in, the, in the intervening, what's that been fifty years now? I think it's not still not completely clear what type of high intensity training is best. And I think that's one of the reasons that there's so much variation. I mean, this aerobic base training, everybody understands how you do that, or anybody who knows about it understands how it's done. It's quite simple. But when it comes to adding intensity, you know, is it better to do very short, very high intensity training, or is it better to do, you know, long, long duration, what we might call in running tempo training or, you know, right around that functional threshold power in, in cycling, which one is, um, is best. And I I've read studies and you know one that Seiler completed just a couple of years ago that would indicate, you know, maybe a slightly different take on that. they did the study with these Norwegian cross country skiers to try to determine which was the most effective um, training their intensity method with them using four minutes, six minute and I believe eight minutes four eight sixteen um, I believe. Duration repetition. Four four,
0: minute, four, four, sorry, four minutes four, eight eight minutes, eight minutes and sixteen minutes, I think was uh, were the different
1: 16, excuse me, you're right, yeah. And, um, and what they came up with, which I think is really valuable information and useful to have, but these were already very successful, very highly developed endurance athletes that they were applying this to. And once again, that isn't very individualized to the need of the athlete. I mean, I I know for a fact, because I've seen this happen over and over again in skiing, where when this idea that eight minute the length of the repetition should be about 8 minutes long if you take a you know 17 year old cross country skier and you tell them to ski as they hard, hard as they can for you know 7 or 8 minutes then their second or third or fourth repetition is just the 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 speed and the power output is going to degrade so fast because they don't have the the local muscular endurance to maintain that kind of power output for that long whereas if you have a Twenty-eight-year-old cross-country skier that's been skiing on the World Cup for a dozen years or ten years, whatever. They they do have that muscular endurance, and so they're going to get tremendous benefits from this, you know, four by eight-minute type routine. So I think it's again that's the importance of of understanding the athlete and understanding the uh, where they are in their physiology physiological development.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. That we we really don't know, and there are lo- lots of you know rules of thumb for if you have this kind of athlete then those sorts of intervals might be better or those sorts but but in terms of hard facts we we have still very little and everybody needs to kind of cook their own meal in terms of what what, what science they read and buy into and and at the end of the day it comes down to experimenting i think and see what works for the individual athlete uh, of course with some with, with a good amount of knowledge you can have a better chance of guessing right the first time around, but but it's still only going to be an educated guess uh, at the end of the day with with the intensity. Uh, I, I think,
1: and I think that's why you see such a huge variation in different coaches and different athletes' approaches to adding intensity, because no one's completely sure. And I think the, the most common approach for most coaches is we're going to sprinkle in some of everything, and and hope that we're you know getting it right. You know, some of these, you know, quite short, super high intensity and others, you know, long duration, like 16 minute repetitions. Um, I think that there is a, there's, that's the reason there's that big range. And, um, and then eventually you will find out which type you seem to respond best to. Um, But just because you hear that so-and-so succeeded by doing, you know, this particular uh, interval protocol for six weeks. Doesn't necessarily mean that's going to work for for everybody.
0: Yeah, what's what's your general take? If you have like so, somebody comes off the street and they're training for a marathon, uh, an amateur athlete, do you have a a sense of what you might give as as your first and best guess for what they need to do? Do you have, for for example, do you do what quite a few coaches do in terms of Doing more and more specific intensity closer to race, so you might do harder and shorter intervals further out and then longer and more race pace like intervals closer to race or or any any rules of thumb that you follow.
1: yes, I think that first of all, I think that your in your high intensity training should in 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 many ways mimic. The demands of the event as closely as possible. So, for instance, you know, uh, someone who's training for cycling should would not probably get ad- appropriate benefits by doing, you know, their interval training in a pool. Um, triathletes, of course, have this much more complex for them because they have three different sports that they're competing in. But I think that if the maximum benefits are going to come from your high intensity training, looking a lot like the event you're training for. I liked, like you suggested, <clears throat> for especially for something like a marathon, I like to start off with very short, with long rest interval, higher intensity runs. We started off with strides, you know, 15 second strides during a, a, a regular easy run um, to try to condition the connective tissue to the impact loading and to try to kind of wake up those faster twitch fibers that we're later going to become you you start using more and more and then we through a process of progression we can move from from that to you know uh, longer and longer intervals and then you know obviously the for me the kind of my go-to for many distance runners are either kilometer or mile repeats um for people competing in events you know longer than um you know let's say a half marathon had good success with that As kind of just a, you know, if you got to do something, let's do mile repeats or kilometer repeats and make sure you can handle this. Also, those for me, those help people develop an understanding of what the pace they should be running at is. So we might, so someone's going to try to run a three hour marathon, we would make those kilometer or mile repeats at that goal pace. And an event and in the beginning, we might have to have you know really long rests between those repetitions so they could recover and sustain maintain that pace. But then, as we get closer and closer to the event and their hopefully their endurance capacities improved, then we would be able to shorten the recovery time between those repetitions,
0: yep. That uh, make, makes sense, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that was that was great. We we got sidetracked a bit from the zones and testing, but but that was a, a great discussion. to Oh, have. sorry, <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Uh, so so let's uh, so so we yeah we talked about how it's important that you have that sort of individ, individual initial testing to establish a bit of a roadmap, and let's talk about the, the ways uh, you 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 mentioned them. You listed them off already, but can you maybe describe the pros and cons of the different uh, testing methods that you use, and and perhaps give some recommendations. What, what might suit whom? Sure. Um, well, we've talked a little bit about these.
1: You know, th- I think that <clears throat> well, we can add a few more into that. But the uh, aerobic threshold determination, which for me is ground zero, that has to be done before anything else. Because if you got if you don't have a big enough vacuum cleaner, like I said, none of this other stuff is going to make very much difference. So. We can establish that by going to a laboratory, getting on a treadmill or a stationary bike, and doing what not a Max VO2 test. And this is one of the problems, this is one of the down pitfalls of going to a lab that advertises Max VO2 testing, is that you they pass through those low intensity zones during the test. So these tests are stepped graded step test where you increase the intensity every, you know, sometimes I've seen it as short as 15 seconds, but hopefully it's more up in the two to three minute range, uh, increase intensity in steps. But the problem with something like a max VO2 test is they usually are in a hurry to get you up to that maximum intensity you can sustain. So they don't tire you out and have you not be able to produce your maximum power, Um, So they'll rush through these low intensity zones in in a way that you can sometimes pick out that aerobic threshold from the data, but it's not very easy. And I think it becomes misleading because you're transitioning through this aerobic zone so fast and the aerobic zone, the aerobic metabolism is relatively, not relative, it's quite slow to respond to changes in intensity. So if you don't have several minutes at that intensity, you're going to blow through that aerobic zone testing area so fast that you just won't get an adequate picture. So the type of test that you want is often called a metabolic efficiency test. And there aren't that many places that administer it, but you want a, a test that might take you know 45 minutes to an hour. And, and most people can't stay on a treadmill that long and still produce their max VO2 at the end of that. That's why is. Setting yourself up for a max VO2 test in in many cases will not give you provide you the result that we need for that aerobic threshold. Um, So you'd want to make sure that you. Another reason you don't want to do the a max VO2 test to determine your uh, aerobic threshold is in order to to produce your maximum um, power output aerobically, you would need to be well fueled and have a good your your muscle glycogen stores would need to be topped up and really in and right brought brought up to maximum ability so you could because that glycogen is going to be what you need to produce that maximum power whereas for the aerobic threshold we often ask people you know always ask people to do this in a fasted state because we would like to see how much of the energy you can produce can come from fat and with minimal from the uh the glycolytic system. So and if you do that, if you go into a max VO2 test in a fasted state, you will not see your max VO2. So these are two different types of tests. And I think that's one of the confounding issues. And these tests are also very expensive. You're spend several hundred dollars um, in order to to find this out. The, the blood lactate test is a good way to establish the aerobic threshold. And um, we don't need to go into it. There's because a lab technician would probably be able to sh- tell you how it's done, but generally you're measuring the first significant rise in blood lactate um, to, to determine where that first lactate threshold or aerobic threshold occurs. Um, that can you know a skilled person can can perform that test and give you a pretty darn good idea um, there's, there, ven- there's,
0: a, there's a very there, there's a very recent website xfzlab.com that has a free lactate thresholds app within it where you can just add your own lactate data and and it uses all sorts of methods so you can use the dmax method and uh, rise above baseline methods and uh, obla and 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 all of that so so that's that's a cool resource for people that want to do their own lactate testing
1: That's great to know. Yeah. I, I wasn't aware of that. I don't use lactate testing as much as I did. I used to use it when I was coaching skiers because I'd be on the ground with them or on the snow with them and we could test during training, but I don't use that very much anymore. And it's easy self-administering lactate tests. It's easy to screw them up. And, and, and I don't, so I don't normally recommend them to most people. Um, these ventilatory markers that I talked about before, either nose breathing or conversational pace, those are something very easy, very low tech, um, give you really good idea of where that aerobic threshold is. Um, the, this heart rate drift test, I think we've seen now inc- remarkable correlation um, between the heart, the accuracy of the heart rate drift test when compared to a good metabolic efficiency test, you know, gas exchange test on a treadmill. So more and more, I push people in the direction of this heart rate drift test because it seems to work, work very well. Um, and, it's, you know, and it's when you can administer yourself again for free. You know, every few weeks, if you're seeing an improvement in performance, you can redo your aerobic threshold test. So let's, maybe we should jump to the second threshold, the la- second lactate threshold or the anaerobic threshold. Um, <clears throat> I'm not as big a fan of trying to determine that either with a gas exchange test or with a blood lactate test. And the reason for that is, once again, those are you're transitioning through that intensity zone for maybe three minutes at the most. My preference is to do those t- tests in the field with sort of a time trial effort. So if you want to determine, like, let's say, how fast can I run for an extended period of time? Maybe it's 30 minutes. You decide you want to use 30 minutes for a world-class athlete. I usually do an hour long aerobic or excuse me, anaerobic or uh, second lactate threshold test. Um, <clears throat> so it's an hour long time trial in a sport specific way, as close to their event as I can make it. Um, so in summer skiing for cross country skiers, they might be on roller skis. Um, and then we take the average heart rate for my skiers. We would take that because heart rate is kind of the metric we're forced to use. We don't have another good way of measuring intensity than heart rate. Um, so we would take the average heart rate that they could sustain for that hour or for a less well-trained person, maybe 30 minutes or, or something in between for a person who's trained in between those levels. And we say, okay, that's the, that average heart rate is sort of the maximum power output you can sustain for this extended period. Now on a cycle, a bicycle would be similar, you know, but you could, you could do it by heart rate, but luckily bicycles, you can also measure power. And so this is where we come up with that concept of the functional threshold power, but it's similar to this idea that we're talking about. And so I prefer to find this second threshold using a field, a a sports specific field test rather than, um, these, because in these other tests, we're measuring a proxy for, that intensity we're measuring either blood lactate or um you know respiratory exchange ratio or something like that whereas in this field test we're actually measuring the thing and we're seeing that thing not a proxy for the thing
0: yeah as andy Coggan famously said the best measure of performance is performance itself Uh, exactly goes goes great along those lines Um, and then Then when you have your aerobic threshold and your anaerobic threshold established, how do you you set their zones? Well, I know because I read it on your website, but can you explain that to the listeners? Sure. I like to keep it
1: very simple. And this is something that came to me from cross-country skiing. Um, When I was competitive in ski ski racing, the, the, the first polar heart rate monitors came out. And they were huge devices, you know, they went on, they were on your wrist, but they were big and clunky and they, yeah, but we were excited to have some way of actually monitoring intensity. And I met with one of the, I mean, you're being finished. You have some, I'm sure some knowledge of Polar and all that, but, um, I met when they, when they began to bring them over into this country, and they first gave them to the U.S. ski team, and I got one, um, we met with one of the representatives from Polar, a Finnish man, and he said that they had they had set their zones up in such in this fashion. And I mean, I know this sounds pretty crude, but I think it it makes some intuitive sense now that I look back on it all these years later. <clears throat> they called Zone one. One millimole. At the top of zone one was where you're making about one millimole of blood lactate. The top of zone two was where you're making about two millimoles of blood lactate. And likewise, for the top of zone three, and basically zone four was just hard. Anything above that, above four millimoles was hard. And I think... So I've used that a very simple four-zone system ever since then. I know that Steven Seiler and the Norwegians often use a three-zone system, which I think is also really good. I think parsing intensity zones down into, you know, I've seen as much as, I don't oh, know, seven zones. I think that's sort of false precision in my book. Yeah, maybe you can measure that stuff. But telling an athlete when they're this intensity zone is only, you know, 10 watts wide or, um, five heart rate beats wide. It's impossible to control your intensity that closely during actual training. So I still use a very simple system and, and I think it fits up well with the one that Steven Seiler uses, which is the top, the aerobic threshold would be the top of what we call zone two. And the anaerobic or the second lactate threshold would be the top of what we call zone three, and then everything above that would be zone four and when we talk about I don't see much use for a zone five or above in terms of intensity because in order to use to maximize to get that kind of maximal intensity, heart rate does not become a useful measure um, because your heart rate doesn't respond to it doesn't show the same things, the same kind of um, correlation with intensity as it does in longer longer duration. Let's say if you're doing zone four intervals for you know four or five minutes at a time, heart rate will be able to stabilize and will indicate that intensity pretty closely. Whereas if you are doing 30 second uphill running spritz, your heart rate isn't as important as the effort it doesn't represent the effort and what i tell people when we're doing these short short of uh intervals is you're just going to go as hard as you can for that 30 seconds um as such that you can repeat it over and over again of course um so i keep it really simple like that And my zone one would be often you know like what we people people would call a recovery state or for these very high level athletes that would be where they do a lot of their aerobic base training and it for me it um it's i take a very arbitrary measure that it's about 10% below as a, in terms of heart rate or power or running pace about 10% below the what we determine through this testing to be the aerobic threshold so that's sort of my system i like to keep it pretty darn simple and i think siler's use of the three zone system is even better because it's so simple but i like to give people something down on that low end to differentiate what from easy to really easy
0: yeah, I think as we talked about with the examples of especially really well trained athletes, that the the zone two training can be quite hard. So so in that example it's useful to have a zone one that you can prescribe. Of course you can also prescribe in different ways, like just really chill or shuffle or what however you want to prescribe. Mm, but sure. but I think that makes mm. sense to 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 separate those two. I I think a lot of people are these are, are used to five-zone systems. And in in that, a lot of the, these zones would have, between the two thresholds, they would have a zone three and a zone four. Zone four would basically mm-hmm. go up to the second threshold. But as you said, when, when you get really well-trained and get that endurance capacity up really high, you can get really close with the first threshold to the second. And then that becomes uh, a really redundant so so actually i even though i personally use a five zone system as well i do like your use of four zones it makes makes more sense to be honest than than five zones for for that reason um and, I, and
1: one well, thing that, sorry oh, real quickly i think <clears throat> i understand completely why it would be better in some ways if you can control the intensity so like a, if a runner goes to the track and they're doing you know 800 meter repeats and they know what the pace should be, and they can control it, they're using pace as their measure of intensity, then that's great. You could parse that down into, you know, there's a big difference between, excuse me, um, you know, five seconds faster or slower in 800 meters, where, and the same thing could be done on a bicycle with a power meter, but when you're, a mountain athlete or a cross country skier and you're in an undulating terrain and you don't have those kind of metrics and you're forced to use heart rate it gets it gets kind of silly like you just said it's, you know if the, if the zone 3 is only 8 or 10 beats wide it's very hard to control that intensity um in in undulating terrain
0: yeah um one more question and and i actually think that we will will kind of start to wrap it up after that because we've been going for a long time and i feel like we could go on for at least as long still but we might save that for uh, a follow-up at some point but the one thing that i want to get at is whether for triathletes in in this context that a lot of them have power meters on the bike and of course gps watches that can give them pace on the run some even have power meters on the run um how would you use different measures of intensity heart rate pace power in prescription or just as a general like this is what makes more sense to use for for athletes because i i think that heart rate with a lot of athletes is very out of fashion um which is which i don't think is a great thing because heart rate is really useful but yeah, you, you can give me your your thoughts on, on how how you would prescribe things and how you would recommend people using different measures of intensity. Okay, so
1: I wish that for this type of sports that I coach and have coached, we had a, a good me- way of measuring this intensity other than heart rate because I don't – while heart rate – I don't think heart rate is – it's not an ideal proxy for intensity. Um but it, in, for these kind of sports, I coach, it's the best we've got. And so we're kind of forced into using it. And, um, you know, I think if you have other ways of measuring intensity, like running pace or power on a bicycle, I would gravitate to those in a minute. Um, because then they're going to be, if you're training for a sport like triathlon, you same thing when swimming, you can develop your You know, aerobic threshold pace, your anaerobic threshold pace. I mean, Albrecht's book is full of examples of how how he used that stuff with with coaching swimmers, Um, and the same could be said for uh, for running. You could you can get your, you can use pace as a very accurate measure of intensity in that case, Um, and then cycling, same thing with power. So, I think in training for for a sport like triathlon, the ideal thing to do would be to have Um, determine these thresholds, these intensity zones for each different sport using one of these testing methods that that we've talked about. And then when you're training for that sport, you would naturally use those zones. Um, But I don't have, you know, firsthand real world experience with coaching triathletes. So that's about the the best I could say about it. I mean, like I said, I, I wish we had a better method for for the kind of sports i end up working with
0: yeah i mean there are some prototypes i think for ski poles with power meters but i'm not sure how whether they're commercialized and and how well they function i i think um one thing that i think is an advantage of using heart rate is that the heart rate zones would stay at least in an athlete that where you expect to see some good development and improvement in endurance capacity the heart rate zones can still stay relatively the same for longer than pace or power zones, so so they remain relevant for much longer. That being said, you gave some examples of the heart rate at the lactate threshold one uh, increasing by a lot, and and that's actually something that was quite interesting for me to hear because I yeah definitely. That's the kind of change that you mentioned. I can't remember how much you said, but that that I wouldn't have expected (laughs) to happen in terms of heart rate. Of course, the pace and the power, yeah. But heart rate, that was that was quite interesting to hear. But that's been one reason that I like to use heart rate for low intensity training or even RPE because I think a lot of at least quite experienced athletes are really good at self regulating if you give them a a verbal description or an RPE number to to follow. Uh, And and I tend to then use power and pace for um, moderate to high intensity. When you want to, for example, do something at race pace, then of course you're going to run a certain pace, not a certain heart rate. If if you want to train for that, uh, to be able to run, let's say a one thirty half marathon after off the bike or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, there are many different ways to go to go about these things, of course, and uh, and it is a blessing for athletes to have the option of using multiple different measures, and 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 a great deal of power comes from being able to combine them as you do with your heart rate drift tests that uses both pace and, and heart rate and or power and heart rate if you're doing it on the bike. So, so using them all in a smart combination, I think is probably the best.
1: And I do think that you just pointed out <clears throat> that RPE or your perception of, of effort is a really important thing to understand. Um, and athletes shouldn't become overly data driven in mean, the, I think of, I think of all this great data that we can now collect with heart rates and GPS and that sort of thing is it's a wonderful tool to have. But in the end, I think it's also really important. Like what I like to do with athletes, I coach is I look at the, the data that they upload into training peaks, but with just as much interest, if not more, I read their comments about how they felt and, you know, so I'm knowing, yes, it's great to know that you ran this many kilometers and you did this much vertical, um, and your heart rate stayed in this zone, but how did that feel to you? You know, or are you still carrying fatigue from something we did two days ago? Um, are you, uh, are, you know, that, that would be a big red flag for me and say, okay, we need to start thinking about adjusting the training here. And I think if the self-coached athlete needs to have that same careful perception of their, of the training effect that the training is having on them and i'm sure you've um i'm sure you know who renato canova is canova is one of i'm I'm a huge fan of his and his training methodologies but one of the things that he says is training is not the work you do it's the effect that that work has on you and so it's important not to just be a slave to the training plan and to be able to ascertain okay is my training going in the right direction here yeah i'm doing the workouts but are they having the effect that i'm looking for
0: yeah no that's a great example can always known for just cutting all the training for a couple of days from his runners if if they don't respond in the way that that he wants and just uh, appreciating the importance of rest in the Dose response relationship and and how that that's as much of a new component, which is something that I was uh, we we had on the list of questions to discuss as well uh, recovery, but we didn't get to uh and um uh, yeah, I think we'll start to wrap up here, but uh, with the rapid fire questions uh but it, it's been really great to have this in depth discussion, and I really hope we can continue with some of the questions we didn't get to at a later point, but let's move on to the rapid fire questions. so take just one sentence to answer these and the first one is what's your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports
1: two um both of them by yuri Verkoshansky. um one of them that sounds counterintuitive is the uh, special strength training manual for coaches chapter seven in that book will open your eyes to some really interesting ideas about training for strength um training for endurance um The other is also by Yuri Verkashansky, and that is called the block training system for distance runners. Um, those two have been incredibly influential on my thinking about how to, how to train, how to coach. Are they easily
0: available? Uh, yes,
1: they're both both available off of uh, Amazon. They're available also from if you go to uh, I can and I can send you the proper spelling. But Yuri Verkashansky's um, he's dead now, but his daughter runs a website where she sells his his uh, writings. And um, and you know, we don't have time to go into it why he's such an important figure, but um, trust me, he is, and he's very he's a lot of what we know about training now. <laughs> he's he's an ex-soviet he was a soviet scientist and soviet coach came from him believe it or not um so yeah they are available and i will send you um, some links after we get off our talk here
0: great and what's an important habit that you have benefited from athletically professionally or personally
1: Uh, skepticism and curiosity
0: and finally who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you
1: Oh, gosh, uh, there's so many people that I've been inspired by and, and looked up to um, that, you know, I, I'm not sure I have one that I could say. But I think that maybe one of the most inspirational sports characters that um, I can think of immediately is um, um, David Rudisha, the world record holder in the 800 meters.
0: Yeah, that's a good call. Uh, really good. Um, yeah, and finally, tell the listeners where can they follow you and uh, Uphill Athlete and uh, find out more about what's what's going on over there.
1: Um, well, I don't have any presence on social media. <laughs> um, I'm too technologically inept to handle it, and too busy with other stuff. So uh, we, but you can find out more about what we do at UphillAthlete.com. Um, we have over 300 articles on the website about training and uh, related activities. Um, also, we have a, a huge video library. Um, we do podcasts on the, our channel as well. And so I think there's a lot of resources there that are free and open. We're trying to disseminate this information to as many people as we can for free. So there's, you know, there's no charge for any of this stuff.
0: Yeah, no, I, I read or skimmed through a lot of articles actually in preparation for this interview. And I have to say, there are very few um, few resources for blog style information on endurance training directed to that is like that, that that any athlete recreational endurance athlete can consume that that I would consider good quality. But what you're doing is excellent, really, really, really high quality. So highly recommend people check check out the blog and i also look forward to giving the podcast a listen i haven't haven't listened to that yet but uh, mm-hmm. but we'll do that shortly well thank you uh, very and much finally you... fa- yeah uh, no, no problem thank you so much for coming on as i said i think we could have gone on for <laughs> at least as long and i do hope that we have a chance to do a follow-up in the future and get to some other questions that we didn't get to today
1: yeah, I think we are kind of kindred souls in our interest in the, you know, as, the I mean, the, I'm interested, I'm fascinated by the science behind all this, but I'm also very passionate about the art of coaching, the art of training, which I think you know, in bring trying to bring those two things together. Um, but again, yep. thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful, and I would look forward to a return visit at some point if that works out for you
0: okay great until then take care scott all right i hope that you enjoyed that interview as always you can find the show notes on scientific with plenty of links to uh, related articles on the uphill athlete website like the heart rate drift test instructions how to set your training zones uh according to what Scott described and our Training Zone's heart rate calculator. Also, of course, we'll link to Scott's books and uh, website, YouTube and Instagram, or Uphill Athlete uh, social media, that is. Uh, I also linked to some previous episodes on The Triathlon Show, Steven Seiler and Jan Albrecht that we mentioned in this Uh, In this episode, as well as the book by Jan Olbricht, which is available on Kindle. Uh, If you like to read in that format, that's how I've read the book through the Kindle version, as well as the website where you can buy Professor Yuri Verkoshansky's books that Scott mentioned as being his favorite resource. Now, if you're interested in taking your training to the next level, then consider getting help from a professional coach or using a good quality training plan. You can check out the options that we have to offer on scientifictriathlon.com and don't hesitate to get in touch uh, if you have questions or want to learn more uh also another note that i want to make is that i was recently a guest on the train ride podcast in episode 86 we were talking about things like base training and periodization among others so if you want to hear somebody else ask me a bunch of questions about how i work the way that i tend to do on this podcast with with the people i interview then that's a really great episode to listen to Uh, we cover some really interesting topics that hopefully you will learn something from Big thanks finally to our sponsors, Precision Fuel and Hydration, that you can find on precisionfuelandhydration.com. Use their free online sweat test and quick carb calculator to understand your fluid, electrolyte and carbohydrate needs and individualize your plan. And book a free video consultation with the team to refine your strategy. Use the code TTS22 at checkout for 15% off your first order of fueling and hydration products. And thank you to Roka that you can find on Roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and exceptional sunglasses and prescription glasses for everything from day-to-day wear to extreme action sports. Use the promo code that you can get on Roka.com for TTS to get 20% off your entire Roka order. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving prayer plan.